We all want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. The Membership Puzzle Project is nearing its end. Since the Public Research Project's launch in May of 2017, they have studied, advised, and supported more than 100 newsrooms around the world, from Akron, Ohio, to New Delhi, India, as they make the transition to a member-driven newsroom. In this conversation, I'm talking with Ariel Zerulnik, who runs MPP's Membership in News Fund, which supports exceptional experiments with membership in newsrooms around the world. We will discuss the original goals of the project, how the project has fared since launching four years ago, and key lessons from the project that can help any membership organization to thrive. Thanks for joining us, Ariel. Thanks for having me, Robbie. So why don't we start with the mission of the Membership Puzzle Project for those few people at the conference who may not be familiar with it yet? Yeah, absolutely. So MPP launched in May 2017, really to support the emergence of membership models and news beyond the U.S. public radio space, which had sort of been working with membership for decades. We'd seen a few digital outlets taking membership sort of a step beyond offering ongoing financial support and building this sort of two-way relationship with our members that we were really intrigued by. The way that they were making membership, not just a revenue source, but also an editorial orientation that recognized the value of reader knowledge, they were tackling not just the sustainability challenges that we spend so much time talking about, but also the sort of trust deficit that newsrooms are really struggling with because of the longstanding sort of opaque newsroom processes. And so MPP was launched to study some of those early successes in order to help other news organizations head down that that same path. And so we started by studying the needs of those newsrooms and the needs of the members of those newsrooms, and then sort of building communities of practice among those newsrooms so they could learn from each other. And then we moved into the sort of second phase of the project, which was documenting their best practices and their early successes in order to help other newsrooms sort of go down that same path. And in the final steps of the work, we've been funding further efforts with membership around the world, and also sort of synthesizing those best practices into publicly available research that other newsrooms can read and access. So you've worked with a really wide range of of newsrooms, um, big and small and in different regions. Can you give an example or two of some of the projects that you tackled or some of the communities of practice that you learned the most from? Like Just a couple of examples to give us a flavor for what you were doing. Sure. Yeah, we have funded 39 projects in newsrooms around the world. And I think what's been really interesting is how different those projects are. But a couple that we've done that I think have broad learnings. One of the earliest projects that we funded was in Romania with a newsroom named Decatur Vista. And we gave them financial and venture support as they transitioned from a print quarterly magazine to a truly digital membership program. And specifically, what we funded for them was a sort of membership curriculum that they developed to give their whole team the kind of relationship building skills that a member-driven newsroom needs. Because if you are going to make membership, not just that monetary ask, but that sort of two-way relationship that I spoke about, that social contract between a news organization and its members, it requires a whole bunch of 
skills that traditional journalists might not have. And so we funded Decathlon sort of training program for their newsroom, which they then sort of shared publicly. They brought in people like neuroscientists to help them understand how people foster connection online and how people understand information. They learned from sort of um, conveners how to facilitate better discussions between individuals in their newsroom. So that's one of the projects that we funded. Um, Another here in the United States that I think is really worth watching comes from Scalawag, a a news organization that covers the American South, particularly communities that are usually left out of the mainstream conversation in the American South. And what they came to us with a request for support for is to help them explore whether events could be a successful membership growth strategy. In the media space, we've become sort of obsessed with newsletters as a path to membership growth. And that that makes a lot of sense because it it has been proven to work and it can be templated in such a way that you can really build routine around it and reduce the sort of daily decision-making that you have to have. But Scalawag's argument was that if you are pitching membership to communities who have been mistreated by mainstream media outlets, you need to sort of do more trust-building work before you ask them for support. And you can't build trust through a newsletter in which they never see your face, they never meet you. Um, And so we funded their work to build out a sort of membership growth strategy based on events. And they learned things like that they could significantly shorten the time between um, awareness to conversion if a person encountered Scalawag in person at an event sort of early on in that journey, or that was their first point of awareness. And they learned that they could actually template that process, not quite to the degree that you can with the newsletter, but they were able to make events a much easier thing to handle on a small team than many expected. So those are two of the early experiments that we funded MPP back in 2019. Fascinating. So I have a question. You were talking about skills and I want to ask you, you know, what are the skills that membership organizations need? So let's put a pin in on that. And then you went right into, I think, neuroscientists to come in and talk about what drives connection. I'm guessing you don't think that every newsroom needs a neuroscientist, but, but I would love I would love to hear what those neuroscientists were able to teach. You know, I think as journalists, we think about our traditionally think about our responsibility as disseminating information. And what Decathlon Vista was exploring as a sort of curriculum that they built out is that if you want to build membership, you need to actually foster a connection with your readers. And that comes down to understanding human behavior a little bit more and thinking about the people that were asked to become members and not just this audience that we broadcast to, but that people were truly in conversation with. And with that specific expert they brought in, I mean, the training was in, in Romanian, so I was not able to, to join <laughs> in myself. But the questions, the things that they sort of explored with their team through that training and others is to understand what drives connection? What triggers anger? How do you sort of get past difficult moments? How do you get people into a mindset where they are open to hearing from others, open to communicating with your team and that kind of thing? That sounds like a lesson we could all benefit from. (laughs) So let's go back to that other question, which is, you know, when you helped them to come up with with a curriculum, what were some of the skills that you saw? And it doesn't have to be just from that, that particular experiment, but what were some of the the skills that you saw lacking in newsrooms as they moved to membership? Yeah. So in this case with Decathlon Visa, they actually pitched us the curriculum that they wanted. So we, this was an early experiment because we were wondering what should be in that membership curriculum. So they focused more on the sort of soft skills, the convening skills, because there wasn't a lot of training at that point in the journalism industry for those kinds of things. But on top of those sort of community engagement, community management skills that are so essential to a, a strong membership 
program. There are also things that probably won't surprise you. It's you need to have a certain level of digital marketing skills because when you launch a membership program, you are sort of launching this tiny little e-commerce business, even though we often don't think about that. You need to have product management skills because membership is this very sort of cross-discipline function. So if you're doing membership well, your newsroom needs to be engaged in it because they're the ones in conversation readers. So there's some there's an editorial component to membership. There's a product management component to membership because it is this sort of iterative project that needs to be very responsive to audience needs and requires a sort of long-term planning that newsrooms are not necessarily accustomed to doing because they're on the sort of daily publication grind. There are technical skills that you need to have because you're going to be processing payments and you're going to be maintaining members' data securely and efficiently. There are sort of culture change skills associated with this. And there's also sort of analytics skills because you need to sort of have this data-informed mindset. Um, You need to be... Newsrooms have traditionally made decisions about their audience members based on sort of hunches and newsroom hierarchy. Um, The editor sort of believes this to be true about the audience members. So we're doing this. But now we have access to data. Now we know what audience members are sort of paying attention to, how often they're reading us, etc. And so newsrooms need to be building out their ability to listen to that data and act on that data, which is something that a lot of newsrooms are, are just beginning to sort of staff up on. And these are all the different sort of components that feed into membership work. Yeah, I like that. Beyond hunches and hierarchy. That could be like the opening of a book or a report (laughs) on uh, data analytics. I like it. So, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but of all of these skills, do you think it's possible to say, sort of say, this is the one that I think is, you know, most important or that I would advise organizations to invest in first? Or would you would you say rather, look, Robbie, there's I've worked with, you know, dozens of of organizations and it really depends on the organization. From a skills perspective, I think it does depend on what you need membership to do for you. For some organizations, membership is primarily a revenue strategy. For others, they sort of integrate it really deeply into their editorial work as a way to diversify their sources, diversify the voices represented in their reporting. So it's hard to say which skills are most important without knowing the particular organization's goals. But in the membership guide, uh, our sort of final public research project, we actually have a whole section on staffing. And we sort of in there have must-have and nice-to-have membership skills based on sort of how it's oriented within your newsroom. But there is a mindset that I would say every single newsroom needs to have. And if you don't sort of make sure that mindset is in place among your team, the skills are secondary. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how, if you have digital marketing skills and product management skills. And that mindset is a real curiosity and respect for your audience members. Those who we see succeed at membership are those that, that recognize that their journalism is stronger, their community is stronger, if they have a true two-way sort of relationship with their audience members. They're not just broadcasting to them, but they are truly listening to them, hearing them, ingesting that feedback, um, that feedback that is that is um, useful, incorporating that into the work. If you don't have that sort of curiosity and respect for your audience members, you're going to really struggle to get past a sort of certain plateau uh, with your membership program, no matter how many good product managers you have in place, no matter how good your analytics team is, no matter how good your marketing team is, that respect and listening capability isn't there you'll be really challenged, I think, to get past a certain point with your membership program. Yeah, so important to underscore the the value of a membership mindset um, across the organization, not just the person that has the you know official responsibility for memberships, yeah. but that membership mindset or ethos is so is so critical. 
<laughs> I'm glad you pulled that out from the skills. You know, we're, we're, we're using this word membership. And I know that people have a lot of different definitions in their head. You know, there are memberships that you buy. There's this spirit of membership that we're just talking about, this membership mindset. How do you define membership? In particular, how do you define membership in contrast, let's say, to subscriptions? Yeah, that's a great question. It was actually probably one of the first things that MPP sought to tackle is to draw a sharper distinction between membership and subscription so that newsrooms could get clear about which one they were offering their audience members. At MPP, we define membership as a sort of social contract between a news organization and its members in which members give their time, their money, their energy, their expertise, and their connections to support a cause that they believe in. It is in exchange the news organization sort of offers transparency and opportunities to meaningfully shape the organization, both in the from the perspective of sustainability and giving money to support its existence, but also sort of to potentially expand the impact of the work by offering connections, by broadcasting the work, by participating in it in other ways. In contrast, in subscription, MPP, we see audience members paying for access to a product or a service. It's a sort of transactional relationship in which what you're monetizing is access to the content. It typically requires a paywall of some kind. And then that works very well for, for many news organizations. And, you know, of course, the New York Times, the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Athletic in Asia were really interested in the success of the Ken. So, and one positive of subscription potentially is it can scale much more quickly than membership because it's just about making sure that everybody who pays get access to the thing that they pay for. Membership as this sort of relationship-based thing sometimes scales a little bit more slowly, but it's also often a much stickier relationship. We see the churn in membership, um, typically much lower than the churn in subscription because there is that sort of deeper connection there. Yeah. Now, what makes for a powerful, a powerful membership? What would be the elements that go into a powerful membership? Yeah, I think it really it comes down to very crisply articulating that cause that you're inviting people to join. So, you know, people are not just paying for access to access to content. In many cases, a member-driven newsroom is keeping their content free for everybody to access and instead sort of monetizing the feeling of community and cause that develops around their journalism. And so the ability to sort of very clearly define your value proposition, articulate how their membership helps you deliver on that value proposition and sort of telling a really compelling story about how you make the world around them a better place and how their joining your organization contributes to that is sort of the cornerstone of a strong membership program. You really need to be able to make the case that their support for your organization makes the world, that they are living in a, a stronger, better place that, that causes the center of the work. And are those missions that the membership is built around, did they vary by newsroom or are they? is it kind of the same everywhere? No, and I think that that's actually an area where membership also differs really strongly from subscription is Membership is built on this relationship with your audience members, and every newsroom's audience members are different. Um, and so, of course, the value proposition is very, very different, whether you're a single subject newsroom that's covering things nationally, you're a global newsroom, or you're a small local newsroom in a town of 58,000 people. Your, your value proposition is going to be very, very di different based on who your audience members are. And if you are copy, copy and pasting your value proposition from another newsroom, you're going to really struggle to connect with audience members and see growth because it's going to feel canned. The subscription messaging is very similar from newsroom to newsroom much of the time. You'll get exclusive access to X or for 99 cents, try out our journalism for a month or for 99 cents for a month. But with membership, you are pitching this cause 
And if that cause is not resonant with your audience members, if it doesn't come out of a place of listening to your audience members, that's going to show up in sort of the conversion that you see because people are going to feel that it is something that was just taken from somewhere else and grafted onto your organization. Can you give me a couple of examples of, I think you're calling them value propositions or these these missions that the organizations are rallying their members around? So just for flavor? Yeah, it'd be hard for me to, to accurately say one off the top of my head. But I think what we see with membership value propositions that resonate is actually something that we saw in spaces outside of news. One of the things that Membership Puzzle Project has spent a lot of time doing is studying member-driven movements outside of the media space because membership has been around for so much longer outside of the journalism space. And one of the things that we saw over and over again is we studied churches, environmental cooperatives, open source software communities, all these other sort of member-driven movements. We even spent a little bit of time studying Burning Man. (laughs) Is that those organizations who were able to frame membership to their organization as one of the ways to restore something that feels broken in the world were the ones who were really successful at making a pitch that worked. What many of the people that we, our research team interviewed for that project, that research into member-driven movements outside news said that one of the reasons they join places as members is because something fundamental in the world or in themselves felt broken and they didn't know how to act on that themselves, but that they trusted the organizations they joined knew how to address that. And so by becoming members, that became one small way that they could begin to sort of be a part of the solution, even if they lacked the skills or expertise to act on it themselves. And we've seen news organizations increasingly pick up that sort of messaging of this thing in the area that we cover is broken. It's off. Here is what we're trying to do to make that better and your support allows us to do that even more so than we we already are. Did you have to go to Burning Man to do your research? <laughs> not, I was not the one lucky enough to go to Burning Man. I'd have to look and see which researcher it was. But you will see in the... We have a report called What Media Can Learn for Other Members of the Movement. And that shows up there. And we also wrote about it for The Guardian. So I was not the lucky one who got to, to go to Burning Man. Um, but, but there were really fascinating lessons from it. Because Burning Man happens. It is what it is. Because hundreds or thousands of people show up and they're not compelled to, but they show up and they build these massive art installations in the desert and they join these groups and they, they contribute blood, sweat, and tears and, and to, to making this thing for the collective. And there's actually a lot of lessons for that and, and that media could, could take from the lengths to which these super fans go to make sure that this happens every year. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And now, it's something that I've noticed, in, and I know you and I have talked about this a little bit before, is that some of these best membership organizations, they layer in different kinds of benefits. Mm-hmm. So they might have content, but they might also have commerce, things that you can buy, and they have an element of community, the ability to mm-hmm. connect with other people that believe in this cause under the organization's umbrella. Was this something that you found with the newsrooms that they needed to go beyond, let's say, just content? Absolutely. I mean, they needed to go beyond content and they needed to go beyond swag. That what you bring up about the layering on different benefits, I think, is really accurate because your audience, your members are not a monolith. Within your membership, there are different types of people who have different motivations for supporting your work. And and one of the other things we actually learned from studying places beyond news is how critical to success it was that you invested a lot of time and energy into listening, testing, and being fascinated with what your members valued about you. And that's a real mindset shift for newsrooms. It's like, I like to think of it as sort of 
taking just even a fraction of that curiosity that we have about politicians and other sort of power players that we cover obsessively in our coverage, if we were just a little bit curious about our members, if we took a little bit of that from our coverage and put that into our audience members, the, the dividends of that would be be so huge. But those newsrooms that were fascinated and did build in sort of feedback loops and processes for internalizing what they heard and making sure that what they then put back out into the world reflected what they heard, those are the ones that we saw really take off with membership. And so that gets into sort of designing a membership program that is flexible and appealing to different types of people. Um, so understanding that one benefit you offer might be for the, the person who loves digging into your journalism with you and wants to sort of play a role in the reporting or fact-checking process. And that's one type of person, but another person might be looking for community, as you mentioned. And so the thing that they might be most excited about is the opportunity to attend events. And so it's really important to have that ability to hear what your audience members are telling you they want out of your work um, and offering sort of flexible ways of participating because there isn't just one way that all of your members are going to want to support your work. And if you only offer that one way, you're losing a whole bunch of other people that would like to contribute to, to the cause. Right. And you brought up that point about how they're brought in in the first place because they're trying to fix something that's broken. And so, you know, one way that they can support that certainly is by writing a check, right? Mm hmm by joining something and saying, okay, I trust that you're doing, I don't know what I'm supposed to do, but I feel better because I'm giving you some money so you can do what you know we need to do. But then, as you said, some of them might say, either I don't have money that I want to contribute, but I want to contribute my energy, or that's what they came for in the first place, or they want to expand their knowledge, or they want to connect with other people in their in their local areas. And so thinking more, I mean, I, I think what, what follows naturally from, you know, a membership to help people fix something that they agree is broken is having multiple ways to do the fixing. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, if, if I said, I'm going to start an organization to fix what's broken in politics, and I just told you that, you might not jump to the conclusion that it was going to be a media organization. Yeah. And I think we're seeing a bit of like a hybrid begin to form. Uh, journalism organizations are increasingly sort of learning from the community organizing space, for example, we see a lot more learning from community organizing sort of showing up in the work. One of the organizations I think does this best in the UK is the Bureau Local, who has community organizers on their team. And they think about how do they make sure that at every stage of the journalistic process, there is an opportunity for audience members to play a role in that work. And so, yeah, it doesn't necessarily look like a traditional media organization when you are incorporating audience members in this way. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Now, I know that, you know, you started in May of 2017. The last 14 months or so have been quite a different time, you know, for the whole world, but but certainly for the world of journalism. How did COVID change, accelerate, hinder the work you were doing? Yeah, it had. There are some elements of the work that got more challenging and some elements of the work that I think actually got easier, which was which was interesting to see. Internally, I think the, the part of our work that got the hardest was sort of learning what parts of membership were the same from region to region and what parts of, the, of membership were very different from region to region. There's a lot that you learn about a newsroom or about a country that you're working in from being there in person and like just picking up on all the little things that happen in casual conversation or by being in a newsroom and overhearing conversations. That was certainly harder because that's lost when you have a series of Zoom meetings with a newsroom, for example. It also potentially slowed down the spread of our work in places where membership is newer because we couldn't do that same level of sort of embedding or being at a conference and answering questions for you know hours or days after a presentation 
for example. But that's one of the reasons that we actually joined the Media Development Investment Fund for our final year. They're an international organization that works very deeply in the global south. And so by being a by partnering our subject matter expertise with MDIF sort of deep bench of regional experts in Latin America, Central Eastern Europe, Africa, the Middle East and Asia, we are able to sort of overcome that challenge that we experienced for the first few months of the pandemic, because MDIF could give us a lot of the sort of regional insight that we were not getting when we couldn't get on a plane and, and meet people in the country firsthand. So that was one area that we were able to fortunately, we had enough of a runway left when the pandemic happened that we could make changes to, to sort of as we realized that was becoming a challenge, we could make that change. But on the positive side, membership has, I think, in many ways accelerated or audience revenue in general has really accelerated during the pandemic. And the sort of urgency or necessity of asking for support sort of overcame resistance that otherwise you might have spent a year convincing a newsroom to take the leap. Advertising revenue evaporating, sponsored events sort of becoming much more difficult or the price point for those dropping. It sort of sped up the shift to audience revenue. And, and we Newsrooms didn't have the choice of saying, I'm afraid that people are not going to say yes when we ask them for money. And therefore, I'm not going to do it yet because I don't feel confident enough. They, they sort of had to take the leap. And over and over again, I think they saw that if they were doing good work and they had that feedback loop and they were good at listening, that people responded so much more positively even than they expected. And we've all seen the headlines about record-breaking subscription and membership numbers and donation numbers during the pandemic. So that part of the work. It basically wiped out tons of resistance that we were otherwise trying to encounter. And, you know, we hear over and over again, people in my country don't pay for news. We joke that we would like to have a poster that says that in every single language that we've ever heard it from. Oh, I love it. I want the t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that the pandemic proved to them that if they just asked and were and were transparent about why they were asking, I think that is really key, is explaining why you need the money. Um, and what it's going to be spent on that, that people surprise you with their generosity and, and how much they are willing to do to make sure that your work continues to exist. Did you find that there was anywhere in the world where it is true that people don't pay for membership or don't pay for news? It, there's a lot of places still where it hasn't been tried yet, it, you know, that are still at the earliest stages of the work. Um, and so I'm sure that there are still countries where people say that and feel quite certain that that is true. Um, and of course, there are scenarios where the majority of the country is not in a financial um, situation which they can afford to pay for news. But one of the things that a, a couple of newsrooms that we're working with are experimenting with, which I think is really interesting as a solution to that, is how do you harness the diaspora from that country? A lot of these countries where people in country don't necessarily have the financial ability to pay for news, they're often countries that have a huge outmigration that have moved to places like the US and Western Europe in order to make a better financial life for their families. And they have the disposable income and they still care very deeply about their home country. Often they still have family members back in that home country. And so you can appeal to them to invest in that media in order to ensure that that media is there to sort of cover what their family members most need covered. Um, an organization working with in India called the News Minute, um, they cover South India specifically. They have two sort of member categories. They have people in India, and then membership category for called non-resident Indians, which is an actual like government designation. And so they have different pricing schemes, different benefits for each of those communities. And they've sort of have developed those benefits in response to what they heard from each of those sort of different categories of members supporting their work. Um, and I think that that is really interesting and something that we should all be, be watching for more opportunities. Yeah, it's so interesting because there's so much fear both around going digital and around moving towards membership. Um, and I think sometimes organizations are so focused on what could be worse 
about that mm-hmm. change that they don't always consider like what new flexibility or new reach or new possibility does it open up for us? You know, because when everything was in print and, you know, I don't, if you know, remember this, but you would, if you wanted a newspaper from a different part of the world, you either had to go to a newsstand that specialized in it and get it a week later or get it sent to you probably three weeks later. And many of those countries are not in a, many of these newsrooms, those countries might not be in a position to ship them overseas at all. So you just like lose access to that completely. But now you have the ability to follow them on Facebook, to sign up for a newsletter if they have that and, and stay plugged in in that way. I want to ask you about newsletters. You had, you had alluded to it early when you were talking about Scalawag and how Scalawag was actually experimenting with, with in-person events to serve a similar function. But I wanted to go deep also on newsletters because I know they're very popular right now. And I think that sometimes organizations sort of just call it a newsletter strategy rather than breaking apart the different jobs that a newsletter can do in terms of, let's say, marketing, you know, communicating marketing messages, communicating practical messages about the company and actually being part of the product, the membership. What did you learn about newsletters in terms of, in terms of best practices and, and maybe also in terms of worst practices? Yeah, we haven't spent that much time studying newsletters because at MPP, um, we are sort of laser focused on membership. And I think one of the reasons we've been successful is we have stayed in the membership lane. And, and there's so many other people doing great work around newsletters. And so we have spent a lot of time talking to those people to make sure that we are giving good advice. But we have not focused a particular energy on studying the newsletter space. I think but you are right when you say that it's really important to understand the job to be done. And I think that actually just gets back to listening to audience members. When newsletters were first taking off, I think we saw a lot of early success with them because they were new. And so we were all doing a lot of user research before we created a new newsletter. And so we were designing that newsletter in response to what we heard from user research. Now that... And I say that because I was working on a new, in a newsletter first local media company back in 2016 when newsletters were just becoming an engagement strategy for local media. Now, with there being so many playbooks and templates and sort of best practices out there, I think one of the downsides to that is that it, they become a little bit generic. And a lot of newsrooms say, okay, we need to increase our loyal readers, so we're going to launch a newsletter. But they don't ever ask audience members, what's missing from your daily information diet? What are the pain points that you have in trying to navigate life on a daily basis? What work of ours do you want to make sure that you don't miss? And therefore, we should highlight in our newsletter. People just like sort of spin up a newsletter based out of, again, hunches and hierarchy, as we talked about in the beginning. Um, so when you get to this level where everybody feels like they know what works, people start making decisions again without listening to audience members. Um, and so I think that's the thing that we see at MPP is those organizations who have made newsletters a successful part of their strategy and then been able to convert members out of their newsletters, they typically have quite high open rates. And those high open rates come out of having feedback loops with audience members and regularly asking readers questions to the newsletter. What do you want to what do you want to know more about in regards to this topic? What would you like to see from our reporters? What questions do you have about the pandemic in our country? And then making sure that those audience members see their answers to those questions that like sort of reflected back in the work. And so newsletters are an excellent way to maintain a really tight feedback loop. And we see them really contribute meaningfully to membership conversion in those places that do treat the newsletters as a, an opportunity for a feedback loop rather than yet another way to broadcast their work at people and sort of bombard them with information, which newsletters were designed to solve in the first place. Right, exactly. There's supposed to be a, a short, concise, clear communication of the most important stories to that person. And now there's sort of a source of anxiety in our inbox. <laughs> like We have so many newsletters that we don't get to on a regular basis. 
I know. It's crazy. It's funny. I, I just recently signed up for a subscription that gives me access to all of these local local news in a lot of different areas that, that are important to me. And the automatic sign up, I think I ended up with de facto 30, 30 newsletters a day because you know there's a morning and a breaking news and an afternoon and an evening news and by every local plus the national. And it was interesting because it is supposed to be it is supposed to be simpler and it is supposed to be um, an easier way. But I, I want to capture the work. I mean, for you, you, you brought for somebody who said, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time studying newsletters. You actually had several really valuable points that you brought up. One of them is about the distinction between you know, newsletters that kind of go to everybody and newsletters that go to a certain group to solve a certain problem. The importance of market research being integrated into the newsletter loop so that you're creating a newsletter to solve a specific problem, whether that's, let's say, breaking news, you know, I want to know what's happening Mm -hmm. right when it happens, if if it's time sensitive, versus I want to have a summary of, you know, these areas that are important to me, but, you know, I'd rather wait till the end of the day and get it all at once. I think that's also really important that there's not you know, you don't just spin up the newsletter, you, you start by saying, what is the job that the newsletter is going to do? So I think that's really important. I think that you're, you're absolutely right. They're, they're totally cluttering our inbox. And for the, for the sake of, of people everywhere, you know, maybe uh, scale back and really focus on, on using your newsletters to fill the gaps and solve the problems that make, you know, understanding the world around them and making better decisions to, to fix what's broken, making that easier, not harder. I'm very interested to see, I mean, almost every news organization that created a coronavirus newsletter, one of the things I'm watching with a lot of interest is how are you going, when are you going to end that newsletter? When does that just end up incorporated into your general newsletter? How are you offboarding people from that newsletter and maybe bringing them into your community in other ways? And if news organizations aren't thinking about how to move those people who sort of started following them specifically for the coronavirus card, try to move them into the broader community, they need to start having those conversations. Yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a really important point. The whole issue around sunsetting tactics in a membership or, or benefits, because mm-hmm. if membership is about, you know, we're going to give you everything we can to help you, you know, solve this problem or to work together to, to fix this problem, there are going to be different tactics where you're like, okay, that one ran its course. And I think a lot of longstanding organizations really struggle with letting things go. That is one of the reasons that we have increasingly thought about a membership program as a product that requires a product management skill set is because you need to be attuned to the changing needs. As your, as your member base grows, some of the benefits you offered early on might not scale. Like they just, you, as it gets to this larger size, you might not be able to offer some of the very intimate benefits that your early adopters really enjoyed. Maybe what the community needs or wants changes because somebody else comes onto the scene that sort of fills that void and they're better positioned to do that. And so you really, a membership program is not a set it and forget it product. We encourage people to use net promoter score surveys, for example, sort of have those always on in the background to track if the satisfaction with the membership program is declining, to survey members regularly, to find out you know, how happy are you with this? Like, what have you enjoyed most about this to regularly ask, you know, what benefit have you most enjoyed? What benefit have you least enjoyed? And to think about when are the moments where we should phase something out, or we should devote more resources to this particular benefit, because everybody loves this, and we're just not staffing it enough, considering how critical it is to the success of our membership program. So you really need to have that sort of always on sort of curiosity, what's working, what's not, what tweaks can we make that kind of thing. And that's why the membership guide, our public research publication has an entire section on how to adopt a product mindset for your membership program. Yeah. So this this membership guide that you have, that's available for free in multiple languages. Is that right? On your website? 
Yes. So if you go to membershipguide.org, this is sort of our penultimate research project. So we spent a lot of time on sort of the concepts and foundations of membership in the first two and a half years or so. And then we shifted into creating this sort of tactical, practical guide that got really deep into the operations. What is the actual work that's getting done day in and day out to make this work? And it's published in English and Spanish now, and it will be out in Portuguese and French by the end of the summer. And it's got 37 case studies in addition to all the sort of practical general advice that's in there. I would just say if you're working on a membership and you haven't looked at it, you should absolutely go and take a look. There's tremendous data and insights. I think in my opinion, it pertains to more than just the newsroom. Whatever kind of membership you're trying to create, I know you're going to get some great nuggets there. Now, do you have time? I love to do a little speed round just to close things out. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. One piece of advice for people listening that want to build a better membership relationship with their customers? Start with listening to your audience members. If you have not done audience research before, if you have not sent a survey, if you have not spent time on interviews with your audience members, you need to spend a little bit of time doing that and thinking about how to tell your story. Once you sort of hear from them what resonates, think about how to tell your story in that way. We spend so much time thinking about how to optimize our payment process or you know, eke out 1% more conversion in our newsletter. And these are all really important tactics. But if you don't have that foundation right, if you are not listening to your audience members regularly and developing things sort of in response to the feedback that you get, no amount of sort of payment process optimization or digital marketing expertise is going to make up for not having that connection. So go back to the basics if you're struggling. Back to the basics. Do research. First subscription you ever had? First subscription, probably the New York Times, probably right after I graduated college, I think. And then I was lucky that my job gave us a subscription for a while, but I think I reactivated it when I left that job. <laughs> the subscription you used most recently today? Probably my Axios. Axios is probably the newsletter that I consistently open every morning. And that, I think that that's probably what I looked at today. A time you felt like you belonged or were part of a membership movement? That's a great question. That's been really hard during the pandemic. And those organizations that managed to make people still feel a part of something despite being locked up in our homes are really strong. I would say it's actually this newsletter that I've been receiving pre-pandemic, but continue to receive now called My Sweet Dumb Brain. Um, It's a newsletter by a woman named Katie Hawkins Gar. And it's sort of just like reflections on the daily, like the ups and downs of daily life and how to get through um, struggling with sort of work-life balance and family and and all of that. But the thing that sort of, and it's all given with this very like kind understanding sort of voice, but Katie does a phenomenal job involving the community in the writing of that newsletter. And so I don't feel like I'm just getting reflections from Katie. I feel like I'm getting reflections from hundreds of women in similar life phases to me who replied to the newsletter. And the thing that I was reflecting on actually the therapist interview is that I am one of those, despite my job, I am ironically one of those people who ever almost never responds to call outs. I am one of those lurkers for the most part, even though I spend my job trying to <laughs> you know, figure out how to activate people to not be that. And Katie's newsletter is probably one of the only things that I respond to on a regular basis. And then look to see that ended up in the newsletter or if other people responded in similar ways. And so that's, that's the community that I think I feel the most a part of in this pandemic when we feel so acutely, I think, the absence of community in so many ways. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to have to check it out. Thank you so much, Ariel. Fantastic talking to you. And I'm sure that that all the listeners, I mean, there's so many nuggets. Really, really appreciate your time. That was the Membership Puzzle Project's Ariel Zerulnik. For more about Ariel and the MPP, 
go to membershippuzzle.org. For more about the summit and to access other interviews with stories from The Economist, Tesla, and Nike, among others, go to d2c.global. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Ariel, go to robbiekelmanbaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Ariel and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.